Hello, hello! Squiggly Film Club again. Back at you. I'm Ben Mitchell, joined by Laura Beth Cowley. Hello. And Steve Henderson. Hello. Hello. Did you say uh, coming at you because I was talking about how the BFG sounds like a rapper? No, I think it was just my, my desperate attempt to be hip that uh, would have been there anyway. Um, you're going to make a good father one day. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, in terms of being excruciating. Yeah. Yes, and absolutely. Jokes and Oh, yeah. Just trying to be hip with the kids. And I think the dad well. jokes are strong within the squiggly community. <laughs> yeah. Just animation in general. It's just we all love our dad puns. jokes. Uh, how are we all doing? Fantastic. Yeah. It was an exciting week for people who like polls on a Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> mm, the small to medium sized conference rooms worth. Voters head to head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it gave us something to do, didn't it? It's still, you know, it's still an intense battle royale of um, of the films that didn't quite make the first round. Um, mm. So, of the ten losing out films, uh, I guess the overall winner has been declared the BFG, mm-hmm. the Cosgrove Hall 1989 version of the BFG. Not the the, good uh, version. the new slick, <laughs> cool version that all the kids are mad about. I assume. Uh, I haven't heard a single person mention that film. No. Like honestly, the the amount of films that I would never have heard of if I didn't run an animation magazine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like we were saying. I think this film kind of bubbles on the surface of being quite popular, but mm. the idea of a remake of this film it's a bit like really was this one that you felt needed remaking yeah like, i think i think what ben's ben means is when we get the emails through saying uh would you like to would you like us to cover the queen's corgi yeah. <laughs> uh, no offense to the queen's corgi which is going to be next week's film uh <laughs> ben's figuring out which bits of this he can edit out <laughs> how, how much libel there is against the queen's corgi because it's she's a member of the royal family she might be listening She's in this film. Yeah, I, I believe the Queen did exec produce that movie. <laughs> so, you know, you don't want don't to piss no, her off. No, no, indeed. We better, yeah, so you're right, she is in this, isn't it? Isn't she? So, yeah, I just called the Queen it. <laughs> she is in this, isn't she? We better be nice about her. <laughs> Somebody's got the tower. Anyone have any introductory remarks? Do we want to tease the next wave of the Film Club podcast before we crack on? Well, we said that we were going to have a little bit of a break, uh, didn't we? So we're going to take a week off, but we're going to announce at the end of this podcast, or right now if we're not one for teasing, uh, the films that we're going to do in a fortnight. So we'll give people a fortnight to vote rather than uh, the standard one week, everybody pile on voting system. Fabulous. So I think the two films that we were thinking of, I think we just came up already in conversation... Yeah. We're going for Fantastic Mr. Fox versus Chicken Run, is that correct? It is. Stop-motion, animal-oriented, great escape films. And Roald Dahl themed. Oh, what yes, keep, keeping with the theme. So let us know. Until then, I guess we can crack on with this week's film, BFG. Uh, I have got my finger stroking the play button. Shall I press it down? Yeah, let's In get going. Three, three two, two, one... Oh, there we go. Ooh, big wispy void right this off the bat. This is my favourite bit of the film. Is that bad? The first, like, five, ten minutes I really like. The, um, because of the wispiness. I don't know. 
know, I think I was always just really intrigued by how it was done because it's clearly not just 2D drawing because it's a lot of like weird particle bits and glitter and light and there were weird things like abstract things that really compelled me as a kid like to do with things like this i think it was because it just it it was 2d but it definitely wasn't disney and i at a young age i didn't understand what what the difference was or why but Mm. i could tell that it wasn't disney do you want to know a little bit about the making of this fantastic beginning Yes. I've got my big list of facts. That's uh, the work of uh, Peter Saunders. And it was a plaster model filled with glitter and bits suspended from a ceiling and then exploded. And then obviously they played it in reverse. So there you go. Ah. But yeah, you're right. It's got that kind of additional craft to it, hasn't it? And it's the type of thing that you would rarely see in a Disney film. That's a very fantastic Mr. Fox shot, isn't it? Mm. That's the book cover mm. and the first shot in Fantastic Mr. Fox I remember being yeah. scared of this as a kid I mean, this owl terrified me I mean look at it staring into my soul fucking hell <laughs> bit of comedy owl business chill the bones the clumsy owl isn't it great when you see the things that scared you when you were a kid and it's always stupid shit? <laughs> like, whenever I show you stuff that I, I, like, was afraid of, you're like, why? <laughs> and I, can't, I have no answers. Like, it, it is always something stupid. Like, I can't really sort of dissect why I found the things I found scary, scary. A couple of things I, I guess I could. But certainly with animation... Um... There was a bit in one of the Snoopy movies that scared me. <laughs> what a little douche I was. I mean, which bit? Plonker's Home for Girls. Um, they were camping, and they were in, like, um, uh, some kind of cabin or a shack. I think it may have been Snoopy, and he opens the door, and there's, like, a bear silhouetted in the door frame. Um and the fact that he opened the door and there was a bear there scared me. So it wasn't the fact that they were away from the home comforts that scared you? No, there's a lack of amenities yeah. I found chilling, being middle class as I was. <laughs> Ooh, an outside <laughs> toilet. <laughs> I just remember the word I was trying to think of like 20 minutes ago. Predator, that was the word I was trying to think of. Okay. There you go. So... Uh, she has... You're gonna gangly legs. I remember very strongly thinking that this character was a boy, up, right up until the point where he she goes, "My name's Sophie." Yes, like, <laughs> that's an odd name for a little boy. The uh, the woman like you I can never hear. read this character as a girl. Yeah, mm. I think I watched it two or three times as a kid, thinking it was a little boy, and just ignored the fact that it was called Sophie. Yeah, same. It's weird, isn't it? Mm. See, I was just going to say that the voice of, uh, the, of, of Mrs. Clonkers that we just heard in the background there is uh, uh, Mathanwi uh, Talog, who uh, animation fans, or Joanna Quinn fans, will know as the voice, the original voice of Beryl in uh, Girls' Night Out. And she was the, ah. the partner of David Jason. She also sang the theme tune for Danger Mouse. So there you go. I think Danger Mouse is, a, uh, is going to be a poster on the wall coming up. There's a little inside a Cosgrove Hall uh, thing here as well. Oh, nice. Does anybody want... When do we want Laura's bleak 
factoid. Oh my goodness! As Ooh, soon as we, possible. Shall we spoil ourselves and start now? <laughs> that, let me know when you feel a so bit. So, what did Sophie happy. die of in the unedited version? Well, it's not Sophie who died. <laughs> okay. But um, the book was dedicated to Roald Dahl's first daughter who died. Hmm. Called Olivia, I think. Let me just double check. Okay, well, let's cast a poll over the evening's proceedings. Yes, that's why I'm here. Uh, it was in 1962, Roald Dahl's lost his firstborn, Olivia, to measles. He read to her every day until she passed away and dedicated the BFG to her memory. Aw. Well, that's that's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Laura. In I mean, it was a nice thing of him to do. He, he wasn't being horrible. This is a horrible <laughs> thing to... Have happened. In 1986, the grieving father wrote an open letter encouraging his fellow Britons to get their children vaccinated. Mm. Well, that I can. Um, so, this is a very pro vaccine film. So, the rest of you get the fuck. <laughs> yeah. Do you tell them? Get, you tell the, get them the, the fuck vaccinated or just get the get to fuck? Like, get to fuck. Get to fuck. If people don't want to be vaccinated, are you talking about those people? I like how political we got immediately. <laughs> Five minutes in and, and all of a sudden we're, we're, yeah. This moment. If you're an anti-vaxxer, you're not allowed to watch the BFG, all right? <laughs> that's your, uh, that's your cross to bear. I'll say that not all of Roald Dahl's ideologies have stood the test of time. Indeed. But that's one I think is pretty uh, evergreen. Mm. I can get behind it. So the moment that we've just seen with uh, Sophie being kidnapped by the BFG was uh, heavily, let's just say, nicked by Steven Spielberg in his uh, remake. I suppose it's fair to call it a remake, although I don't think Steven Spielberg spoke about this particular version in any of his interviews or anything. And it was certainly wasn't part of the... Uh, promotional materials the fact that it was a remake of this particular film which i think is a massive shame because you know the efforts of this film to go unnoticed or or unmentioned when steven spielberg pretty much just nicked that opening bit with the bfg being stolen by sophie uh even shot for shot uh i think it's a bit cheeky oh so it was like you could line them up almost yeah pretty much yeah Yeah, it's a tricky one. Like, sometimes, I think when there are sort of multiple adaptations of the same source material, like, there'll be a bit of overlap in the sense that, well, how many different ways can you visualise something? But a sequence like that, yeah, if if it lines up, then probably someone was looking at this. Mm. It's a weird one, though, because it's... You would assume that, like when there's been a classic film made or something that at least is well respected from uh, source text, you would at least look at that to see which areas you don't want to uh, repeat. You know? Yeah. Um, And then I think sometimes sort of, like, when you think of the other, like as another Roald Dahl example, there's the very, very famous Charlie and the Chocolate Factory um, with Gene Wilder. And then the really weird one with Tim Burton. And they're sort of fundamentally different films. Mm. Um, I, I, I'm not really that familiar with the Johnny Depp version. I've seen bits of it on TV. 
it seemed like that was kind of almost making a point of ignoring the previous film version. Yes. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, and it went for the it, it went for a few more dial things. One of the one of the things I did like about it, although it did go a little bit Burtony, which you know is in the right doses is no bad thing. Uh, it it actually there was moments from the book which I absolutely adored, which weren't in the uh, original uh, Gene Wilder version, uh, which was Willy Wonka in the Fo- Chocolate Factory, and then obviously Charlie in the Chocolate Factory for the uh, Tim Burton one. But um, yeah, a moment in the book where the kids that have fallen into uh, have fallen foul of all the traps that the chocolate factory has are walking out, and Mike TV has been stretched, and uh, what were they called? Violet has had had all the pulp knocked out of her, so she was all sort of saggy and stuff. Uh, and the other one, uh, Violet, Mike TV, and what was the other one called? Veruca. Veruca, Veruca Salt. Uh, she was a spoilt one, wasn't she? So she was all covered yeah. in, on in like, rubbish. Garbage. garbage. Yeah, because she'd gone down the garbage chute. Yeah, and I loved that. I feel like she got a better deal. <laughs> but she almost, en- she almost ended up in the incinerator, so it was a 50-50 chance. Yeah. She, he should have burned her. Yeah. Because if the other one has, like, loose, sagging skin and, and will need surgery blue, to recover well. from it, like, <laughs> Veruca Salt should have, you know, first degree burns all over at least that just seems fair to me equal yeah. <laughs> opportunity um <laughs> traumatizer that's what we all know you for ben <laughs> so we're uh, we're being introduced to the bfg here voiced by david jason uh who's obviously been a massive part of all the cosgrove hall things his voice of ducula and danger mouse uh and he's doing the uh, the bfg here as well I didn't know that. Well, you do now. Yeah, that's what I'm here for. You do the sad bits, I'll do the nerd bits. Deal. <laughs> I've actually, I actually got in touch with Brian, and he's given me a, a letter to read to the listeners. Ooh. It's about four minutes long. <laughs> I've timed it earlier oh, on. Oh, my. Um, I should read it out now, maybe? Yeah. Okay. Uh so, this is from Mr. Brian Cosgrove himself, uh, the director of the film. He says, Dear all, Steve has told me that the BFG came out on top in the vote for this week's Squiggly Film Club. Hearing that took me right back to the time when I was putting the film together. Such fun. First, there was the recording of the track. David Jason was always a joy to work with, especially uh, because it didn't feel like work. Work is where you have to suffer a bit. This wasn't suffering. There was loads of giggles. It was a happy, happy time. There are stages when you're making a film uh, where you quite clearly see what you that you are getting something special. The world uh, that Roald Dahl wrote was becoming clearer and clearer as the recording progressed. If it wasn't for David Jason and Amanda Root, who voiced Sophie, uh, in the recording booth, uh, this film wouldn't be how it is. It was the big friendly giant and little orphan Sophie in the recording booth. They made the story come alive. There are times as a director when uh, there are times for a director when he has to work hard to get the performances he wants and the story deserves. Directing the BFG wasn't like that. For most of the time, all I had to do was sit back and enjoy the story unfolding. I remember the first time working with David, I told you it was a long letter, when I voice tested him for the first show we worked on together, Danger Mouse. 
I was testing pairs of actors, one for Danger Mouse and one for Penfold. Unfortunately, the actor I teamed David with arrived, well, let's see he say he had rather a large liquid lunch. And David told me later that he thought he didn't have a chance of getting the role because the other guy was so bad. But I could see that David Jason was someone special. He gave me a marvellous Danger Mouse, then a great toad in The Wind in the Willows, and now the show we are talking about, the BFG. He brought something special to all the characters he played for us at Cosgrove Hall. He's quite an exceptional actor. That's why I worked with him again and again. I tried other actors, but I kept going back to him because he was so good. I'm proud of the film. I had a budget of about three million pounds. That might sound like a lot. For any of you followers of animation, you'll know that animated features at the time cost 30 or 40 million pounds and climbing. That's why most of the good ones come from the States where the big money is. So yes, I'm proud of what the team created. Most of the animators were trained in-house, all recruited from art schools, with the occasional one or two who had worked in London animating commercials, a good group of people. And remember, the film was made using the classical approach, all drawing transferred to acetates and painted on the reverse. We made it before colouring by computers was possible. I let my mind wander sometimes and wonder how much better it could have been uh, if we had doubled the budget, you know, but I don't care and I'm happy with what we did. I hope the screening uh, is good and that you enjoy it. Watch out for giants if you go out after the dark. From Brian Cosgrove to the squiggly listeners there. So there you go. Sorry, I tripped over a few of the words at the beginning there, but then I learned how to read halfway through that letter. But there you go. <laughs> so it's a growing process. <laughs> it, is, it certainly is. Lovely words from uh, Brian Cosgrove there. Mm. And um, some interesting points about the budget. Because I wouldn't have thought, looking at it, that it was that much less than the average feature that was sort of coming out around this time. I mean, maybe, was this 1989? So maybe, I guess, like, say, something like The Little Mermaid or something around that sort of time, you'd see, okay, there's, there's you know, more clout or more financial clout behind it. But there are quite a lot of, like, big features... Mm that I would say this is comparable to, mm. you know? Like, this is all full animation. A lot of the performance is really well observed. Um, there's a lot of emotion. The scenes are generally well directed. Uh, the level of detail on the BFG, I mean, on all of them, but the BFG in particular with all the wrinkles and stuff, that's a shit ton of stuff to keep track of. Yeah. Um but there's so much going on with his, you know, his facial movements and his body language. And so, like, right now he's kind of, you know, you can sort of tell pretty much what the conversation is without the audio because of all, and what each character is feeling. Mm. There's nothing really sort of left to, um, there's no real ambiguity about it. And that, I think, to me, suggests something that has a massive budget because... You know, those are usually the things to go when you're working on something that's, you know, a tenth of what uh, is what the status quo is. Um, so they certainly pulled it out of the bag. Also, there's little moments. I mean, when when Sophie's talking and the giants in shot, where it switches. You know, the staging is just perfectly put together. It's really good. Uh, you know, the the giant switches from being a prop. To you know, to be part of the background, to being one of the characters, it's it is really good work. 
Um, I think at the time as well, I think something like Oliver and Company was done for 32 million. Uh, and I wonder how much of that was actually spent on promotion because this was a Christmas Day film for ITV, I think. Uh, well, it must have been for ITV because uh, that's what uh, where Cosgrove Hall uh, made their work for. They worked for Thames Television. Um, but yeah, I mean, look at this here. Fantastic work. Mm. So you were saying that you you haven't seen the Steven Spielberg version. Uh, I haven't. Yeah. No. 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 Okay. Well, I think you're watching the best version. Just uh, I I think I got about two thirds of the way through, and then I realised that. I was putting more effort into the film watching it than, than I was going to get back uh, out of it in any terms of enjoyment and such. And that's not because I'm a massive Cosgrove Hall fan and I was sat there mumbling about sacrilege, but it was because I just didn't, I just didn't get it. I didn't understand the point of it, why it was made. I mean, obviously it was made no. for money, but um, why it was made in terms of what what was new, what was unique uh, and what its purpose was because if you are going to make a remake you have to you have to inject something you you have to inject something new to it and i feel that's where spielberg as an amazing filmmaker as he is kind of fell short i think that probably maybe this is me being cynical very off-brand of me i know <laughs> I, I kind of wonder if someone of that sort of standing, very, very notorious director, um, with, you know, hit after hit under his belt, certainly, you know, in his heyday, um, if he would look at a film like this and kind of feel like, okay, let me do a proper one. Mm -hmm. Now that is, again, again, this is me, you know, maybe projecting, but that's what I feel is what John Favreau is all about. I think he, he looks at these classic animated films and he thinks, let's do it right. Who? He did the, the guy Jungle who does Book. the Disney remakes. Mm. Uh. Um, the Lion King as well. Yeah. I don't, do you think that that's a, a bad read of um, his... Uh, I, I think that there is a... Well, actually, I think I might go into a, a, onto a wider conversation because I think there is now a trend, isn't there, that... People have grown up watching certain films. We grew up, our generation uh, grew up watching the uh, the Disney classics, the Disney Renaissance, and Disney. And we've now got kids. Well, we haven't. Uh, we're lucky. But uh, some some people uh, of our generation have now got kids who are of an age where they want to watch the Disney films, uh, but they want to get people in cinemas. And so, rather than re-releasing The Lion King or uh, The Little Mermaid or whatever, what they'll do is they'll remake The Lion King, The Little Mermaid or whatever, uh, The Jungle Book, and they'll put it on in, in in cinemas because, you know, you're guaranteed to like it. If I told you to go to the cinemas to watch something unique and uh, new, why do you want to take that risk of spending... Uh, let's say, you know, 20 quid on yourself and 20 quid on each of your kids to go to the cinemas and watch a film that you're not going to enjoy. Whereas you can be guaranteed that you will enjoy The Lion King or you'll enjoy the Aladdin because you've seen The Lion King, you've seen Aladdin. You know you're not going to... It's not going to have any 
kind of consequence in, in watching it. So I think that there's a trend, and, and Spielberg might likely have seen the BFG and thought, well, I can make a good version of, I can make a good version of this, uh, and 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 reap the same benefits that um, Favreau has benefited from, the Jungle Book and the Lion King. Is it lazy? Yes, it's fucking lazy, but it's lazy of the cinema goers as well as the the directors, I think. Do you do you think then it's a gambit that pays off? Because again, this might just be the squiggly echo chamber, but it does seem to me that the the immediate reaction is rarely like, oh, this comfortable thing from my childhood. It's more like, fuck you, you're ruining my childhood. Yeah, but that's coming from our age group. Actually, all of the sequels and and remakes of the films actually do incredibly well at the box office. Mm. Because people are often stuck with things to do with children when it's raining, so going to the cinema is a big part of like entertaining children. And when you think about films like say like the lion king versus something like box trolls they're not going to come out crying from lion king but they do often come out crying from things like box trolls that or more avant-garde children's media what sorry i'm not following you so the kids kids would be upset because of what the content the yeah yeah like yeah. I've, I've never heard of a child leaving cinema in a disney film but i have heard multiple stories of kids coming out during Leica films. Right. Just thinking of the most, you know... Yeah, it's, it's okay. too much of a film, risk, isn't I could it? See, I could see people, yeah. I, again, I, my sort of generation, if we went to the cinema, we weren't fucking leaving. No, no, and <laughs> yeah. also that would you be... You sit down and cry at yeah, that, yeah. that lion's dead dad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not getting a refund. But Disney is very good at that, about, like... They, they know exactly what they're doing psychologically with, like, pitfalls and things like, you know, something sad happens, they'll, like, put a fucking song in it. Mm. Like, where they don't always do that with box trolls. And actually, uh, with uh, Leica films, and with Leica films, it's more the visuals of it is far more jarring to children, I guess. I don't really know why the kids get scared of them, but I was in a cinema when a kid was freaking out watching box trolls, and I didn't understand why, but... There's something about it that just really freaks them out. And it's not the box trolls themselves, it's um, Snatcher. I could see some kids uh, soiling their little drawers at the uh, sisters in Kubo and the Two Strings. Yeah. They were were not uh, fucking around. It's a mixture of um, just different cultural understandings of things and just not allowing children to see a wider for stuff and like you said there's loads of stuff that you grew up with that you found creepy and scary and stuff but it shapes you as a person like it's good to be scared as a child there is this kind of weird idea that children should be shielded from anything remotely sad or creepy or um, unpleasant but you know they got us they've got to see it sometime and cartoons are the reason for that for the most part is to start and cinema in general it's about learning to self-soothe yes fantasy is a great uh, introduction to the harsh realities of life, or to get people uh, used to it before they have to have to have to, have to face those kind of traumas and in, in person. Mm. Mm. But so that would—that's my probably my main issue with a lot of the sequels and stuff—is that they actually end up somehow being even more watered-down versions of original Disney films mm. Mm. because they they often hide the deaths even more so. And the fact that they're... Like with The Lion King, one of the main issues of The Lion King is that um, 
no one felt like any of the characters emoted because they are basically real lions. Yeah. And real lions don't have eyebrows, and it's really hard to know what a real lion is thinking because their face is a complete blank nothingness. Well, that's, that, that, that was one of the more terrifying things of, of The Lion King was the fact that you can't tell what they're thinking. Uh, you, you, you're right, the eyebrow thing is, is, is spot on. Uh, but also, like it shot f- it, Favreau in the the remake of The Lion King, goes shot by shot between, uh, so you could put them next to each other and they're exactly the same. But instead of having the bits where there's a moment where Mufasa looks down at Zazu and gives him this kind of knowing smile and nod as if to say, you know, you're all right, mate. Whereas in this this sort of like mangy, dopey lion sort of stares at a bird. And he, the audience are looking like, what's he, what's he thinking? He's thinking lunch. He's thinking there's a bird there. What am I going to do with it? What I, I, you know, there's nothing to it. Uh, but yeah, it's it's, yeah. I, I would I would I wouldn't do it. I don't think we should ever do it. But putting up the Lion King, the animated version versus the um, CG animated version. <laughs> let's get let's put it that way because obviously they're both animated. I don't want letters. Um, but yeah, uh, if we put both of those up against one another for the film club, I think I would think that the animated, the two D animated, the original, shall we say, would get more votes than the CG version. It might even receive the same trouncing, the CG version that this film that we're watching now got when it was up against the Iron Giant. I could sit through um, an appalling CG film. For the uh, for the bants, <laughs> for the for the mutual rantage. <laughs> yeah. There there are some bad there are some bad decisions made um, in in some of them, particularly the the new Aladdin film. But we're talking about the the other films when this one's going on at the moment. I think this the moment we, we're, we're during the Whiz Popper song or the Whiz Bang song, uh, where they're drinking this. Um, flob squattle or something that makes them fart um, and makes them uh, bounce around one of the obviously key themes of Roald Dahl are both farting and being an orphan <laughs> or your parents dying in uh, mm. horrific ways yeah I was going to say this is very similar to that scene in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory isn't it in, in, the, in the gas chamber mm. Uh, gas chamber is probably not <laughs> what people no, may imagine. Not what I was going for. The flatulence chamber. The flatulence yeah. chamber. I believe was the synonym. Um, hmm. I remember in the uh, the second Charlie and the Chocolate Factory book, Charlie uh, in the Great Glass Elevator, and there was a uh, one of the little sort of side stories in that. I think it was an Oompa Loompa song or something. It was about a little girl who eats all her grandmother's medication because she thinks they're Skittles or sweets or something and just ends up having the shits for the rest of her life. <laughs> she's lucky she didn't die. Well, I, I think she just very, very nearly died and then no, she just destroyed her colon. Jesus Christ. The second Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is a bizarre book. It is. Because um, they, they go up in the elevation and then they go into space and then they're aliens and then, like... And the aliens, I kind of remember being genuinely quite threatening. Do they give them candy? Oh, it's got nothing to do with candy and stuff, is it? It's, yeah, the chocolate factory is fucking long gone. Yeah, it's it's like, right, listen, guys, we're off on a trippy adventure. 
you're going to see some things. Now, Laura, you're, you're quite into your Roald Dahl films as far as the animated ones, but you don't really like Roald Dahl books. I've never read a single one. No? I read, I read Fantastic Mr. Fox after seeing the film and was like, how the fuck did they get this from that? Right. Like, ten like pages of a fox in a burrow. Yeah. Like, I did not understand how the two were remotely related. That's the thing, is like when they make films out of Dr. Seuss books that are really, really quick I love reads. Dr. Seuss, though. I grew up on Dr. Seuss, not But Rondell. you can see that they take a lot of like artistic license as far as how they extract yeah, but and... because Dr. Seuss books are like poems, and they're like a grand total of maybe 500 words, but the general themes and stuff are all there. Yeah. Um... No, I, I liked the books. Mm, me too. Um, I think that, you know, I don't, I'm assuming they're still, you know, because they're still obviously um, big in bookshops and stuff, so I'm assuming kids still read them. Um, but I kind of, I the adaptations ran a bit hot and cold with me. Um, and I remember this one. It wasn't one I owned. I do remember sort of seeing it. Um... Some of them I'd get sort of annoyed at the sort of departure from um, what was in the book. Mm. Um, but I couldn't really remember if there's anything like that in this or if it's quite faithful to the book. Was there any sort of different discrepancies? Ending. Yeah? Yeah, and, and I think okay. different bits throughout. Um, I think the demise of the giants is slightly different. Uh, spoiler alert, but yeah. Mm. But uh, Roald Dahl himself was really happy with this adaptation. He had loads of issues with previous films. He didn't like the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory because he wanted no. Spike mm. Milligan to play Willy Wonka. Uh, and so when they had um, Gene Wilder play it, and obviously it was nothing like the film he imagined, they he, he took away the, the rights to uh, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. Elevator. I think I remember, I mean, this may very much be wrong, but I have a feeling I remember there being some sort of association with the Dahl estate for the, for the Tim Burton version. And they're getting some sort of, other than obviously getting the rights to it. I think maybe his wife was like, it's a, it's, I think he'd have liked this one. They always do that. And because he hated yeah, every adaptation. He absolutely. Yeah. He, I don't think he liked the ending of. I don't know if he was around, but I don't think he liked the ending of the witches, uh, which I, I think is a brilliant film. I loved that as a kid. Same. But um, I know that this was the only one that he actively uh, applauded. Uh, in fact, there's a there's a, a a story that Brian tells where he actually stood up in at the screening in Soho and gave it a huge round of applause. And Brian's got a book which Roald Dahl signed, and he said to to Brian Cosgrove who's made uh, made this book come to life in the most wonderful way. So he was a fan of this adaptation. So, you know. That's good. Just doesn't like Gene Wilder. I didn't care for the ending of the film version of The Witches. What's meant to happen? Well, they don't get turned back. Um, oh, yeah, you said that. He just, at the end of the book, forever. he's just a mouse and he's going to be dead in a few years. Yeah, but <laughs> That's how it ends. Yeah, but that's beautiful. And I like the ending better. Yeah. Um, well, that's but I, 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 the granny. ending feels very tacked on in the movie. Mm. Um, 
But do you think that's film. maybe going back to what I was saying earlier? Do you think that was maybe just the time period it came out with, and and how people people are so, sort of weirdly okay with people with kids reading horrible things, but when it's committed to film or a visual, they're like, oh no, 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 they can't see it, and they're like, I've never understood that logic because a child's imagination of what's happening is far worse than what they're actually seeing ever. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I think certainly the the meddlers in the uh business of show are probably more like cautious and hypersensitive than say in children's publishing. Um so they would let an ending like that. And also the book came out a long time before the film. Hmm. So in the sort of late 80s early 90s whenever that film came out, um there would have been some you know wet wipe <laughs> who would have been like, oh, no, no, the, the kids have to be kids again at the end of the film. We can't think that that's not a very happy it's ending, is it? It's tested wrong with the audiences. Yeah. They want some razzmatazz. <laughs> and there are definitely some films that have been, like, kind of, not ruined, but, like, the, the, the need to change it to a happy ending seems so redundant. Um, but I don't know. I mean, the world didn't end either way. I think what a good sort of classic example of like an author's vision for their story, like as a film, um, would be Stephen King and The Shining, and like I imagine Roald Dahl looking at Charlie and the uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the film, and feeling dissatisfied with the performance and I assume other elements of the film. Um, you know, Stephen King was very nonplussed with his. Uh, story being turned into a kind of cerebral art house horror film um mm. and so if you ever want to like educate yourself on why some authors should just stay the fuck out of the way <laughs> watch stephen <laughs> king's version of the shining which he did in the 90s and it is godless <laughs> really it's it's just ham-fisted bullshit <laughs> and if you're on the fence about whether you think Kubrick is a good filmmaker or not, this, watching this, it was a TV movie, and this will absolutely cement, well, of course he was a good director. Um, <laughs> as far as film directing goes, Stephen King is a bloody great author. Um, I don't think Roald Dahl ever had any interest in making films out of his stories, but, um, you know, I... It, I understand why an author would be quite precious about certain things. It's going to come from so many things that are so dear to your heart, even if it's creative fiction or outlandish fantasy stories. It's going to be rooted in something. Um, a characterization will probably have a special significance. And um, so, as you say, if he had a very specific performer in mind, then any version of the film without that guy is not going to really kind of land mm. for him um it also might just be a better idea that they want to defend you know I, I, one of the things that i like most about the ending of the witches uh which is it is explained to me uh when i was younger i thought wow that's 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 something it was uh, something revelatory to me as a kid that you know the kid stays as a mouse and will only live for a couple of years but he gets to spend the rest of his life with his granny, who's going to die in a couple of years anyway. So it's a tale of mortality, and they get to spend 
a happy life together at the end. You know, they won't miss one another. And that's that's far more beautiful than, you know, Jane Horrocks turning up in your driveway and, you know, spinning magic out of her fingers. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. Yeah. I'm here. I'm your deus ex machina. <laughs> <laughs> Shooting a convoluted resolution out of my fingertips. <laughs> Did somebody call for a happy ending? Uh, vote for the chicken run and you'll get more Jane Horrocks impressions next week folks there you go (laughs) (laughs) or don't and you won't get me and Ben doing impressions of Jane Horrocks I don't know what what type of advertisement that is but yeah um, yeah Roald Dahl was uh, was delighted apparently he stood up and uh, and gave a massive round of applause Uh, so yeah this this is one of the few adaptations that he uh, he really enjoyed Well, you're talking about the family as well. Uh, the design of, of Sophie, the character of Sophie, uh, is actually designed to look like uh, Sophie Dahl. But uh, Brian Cosgrove took a little bit of license and gave her ginger hair. I think um, uh, the original Sophie Dahl, Roald Dahl's granddaughter, uh, a, you know, the famous model. Um, yeah, she was apparently wearing John Lennon glasses at the time as well. So uh, it was a little bit of a... Kind of a little favour of the director to look like um, like his granddaughter. It is a, it is ironic that in the film, Sophie hangs out with a giant, and in real life, she hangs out with Jamie Cullum. <laughs> it another, was a reaction. He's just from another book. She just she was a bigger fan of the Umpalumpas. <laughs> I see. We were we did we did take a look at this before we started recording this this show and there are some spectacular images of those two together. Now you know love is love. I mean I'm you know let's not shame that, but um, they are an odd couple. Yeah. Eh. Bit of a height disparity. Fair play. I think it's just the way they're always photographed. Like he's just further away as well. So it's not only that he's already quite much short, like quite a lot shorter than her. It's the fact that he's like completely a different scale to her most of the time. Small he's, and no, she's, far she's, away. He does look like he's doing the thing where you kneel on your slippers to make yourself look short. It, it isn't <laughs> like in the in the photos with her. <laughs> this was a very big thing in like. 80s films was things that looked like glitter had just been thrown willy-nilly. Yeah. I'm, I've been watching this for the last 10 minutes and be like, when is it going to stop being a glitter side of a, you know, a caravan with a unicorn on it? <laughs> like, everything is was very shiny glittery. It's reminding me a bit of, um, remember the Santa Claus movie? Yeah. With, um, and just everything had fucking glitter on it because that was like because I don't know, camera quality was worse back then, so everything had that kind of blur effect on glitter, and it really caught the camera. And I think everyone, ooh, that looks nice and magical. Well, this would have been for these effects. They would have been shining lights directly at the cell, wouldn't it? Because it was all done in camera. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I love it, but it, it really places it in like eighties, nineties oh, yeah. films, like this and like the Never Ending Story. Hmm. They all have this kind of like hippie glitter party feel yeah yeah and there's just a lot of this going on (laughs) a lot of like 
shiny shiny lights <laughs> it's what made the girls watch the film <laughs> it's an attraction to light yeah. like a moth you know how young cho- young <laughs> ah, stimulus young girls are basically moths <laughs> that age old <laughs> analogy <laughs> glittery shiny things yay fucking more <laughs> bring it all why is he in a disco room now he's such a uh, dented head I know I, it's his chin is quite troubling the chin's a bit unfortunate the chin is troubling lie. it really as the film goes on it looks more and more like a scrotum I, I don't think it's it's getting more and more scrotal as it goes on I think, I think it comes in full scrotal and we just kind of get more acclimated to it. I think as less as I'm less baffled by everything else, I just focus in on the very scrotial chin. I mean, a cleft chin. It's the extension of it, though, isn't it's it? The it's the extension, and it's it, the very it's artistically the con- distributed hairs. Yeah, it's the concaving from where the jaw should be to then where the bobble of the end of the chin is, and yes, and then the the kind of pubesque hairs. Yeah, if one were to draft a graffito of a phallus and distended testes, um, and then give in it boredom eyes. or just out of artistic expression, it would very much have a similar composition. The head I design think. is a bit like you know when you see those videos where they start drawing something and it looks kind of dodgy, and then they're like, "Ah, got you. I, it was kidding. It's actually a duck." You know what I mean? Can I just remind you this? both that you're not oh. doing your sexy animation podcast now? <laughs> no, there'll be no scrotal talk on this it's children's a crossover classic. episode. <laughs> it's a crossover episode. Yeah, you know what it is though. It, it really sort of um, uh, it draws it draws attention to <laughs> the effectiveness of the animation because it doesn't bother me. I'm just saying it's just interesting. It, it, but it feels like it should be jiggling. Mm. And the fact that it's so static does sell it as a chin just above a scrotum. Mm. It's just very extended, isn't it? Being all coy with the bottle. So what's happening in this film? She's uh, he, He's collecting dreams to give to the children and she's asking him about it. So there's a Danger Mouse poster. I think we might be out of sync. I don't yeah, see a where? poster. Oh, oh dear. Uh, what are you guys we're, seeing at the moment? We're still in the He cave. just put up a really shittily spelled note on the bottle. Oh, I'm maybe running a little fast. So I must have oh. the director's cut. So tell me where you are numbers-wise. Uh, Time-wise, yeah. we are... 43 minutes and 15 seconds in. Yeah, same here. So we've uh, obviously got no, different we're in, versions. We're in glitter paradise right now. Oh, right, okay. What was your source for the film? Usually we um, we make a point of... Sharing the same one. Yeah. So this being the time that we didn't do that, of course it's going to be the time <laughs> that we're watching it from different sources. No, I'm at four, um, I was at 43.15, but I've, I've got a uh, the same... Uh, uh, the same films, DVD. Maybe your um, maybe your playback is slightly faster somehow. Well, no. this is a thing, but I, it's confusing because this is a British film. Yeah. But 
um, DVDs run faster when they've been transferred. Let's say if it's an American film, the original version of the film will run a bit slower because for a lot of home media releases in England, they have to speed up the footage by like a fraction of a percent because of ah. 25 the frame rate yeah. well i'll knock back so a that bit. where causes... are you guys now in the film uh we'll let you know when we see danger mouse poster right cool and then i'll knock back uh, uh now yeah oh, we just it saw it <laughs> perfect Hidden bad danger mouse poster above this one so uh just to just right, right we've done a technological uh, explanation there uh, we're at the point now where the BFG, because Ben asked well, what's going on in the film, the BFG is now distributing dreams to uh, to all these kids. Yeah. And I've, I've seen what happens in a bit, so I don't want to spoil it for you. And dreams are seeping into his brain like glowing ants. <laughs> and he's dead. No, he's <laughs> okay. He's in a bathtub. This really reminds me of an animation that uh, I think I saw in school about... Uh, it was a sex education animation. Yes. It was people in a bath yes. with a duck. Well, that's a happy-looking bath. He's got the, <laughs> I'm not going to say it. He's got a uh, beaming grin on his face. A boo! Oh, he's invisible now. This... This feels like a completely different thing, film we're watching now. Yeah. Like the um, undulating the background. The, uh, Good, isn't it? Yeah. So is that the overall... Again, it's been a long time. Is that the overall thing is that this is where dreams come from? Is giants walking around your town blowing Green. dust in your face? Yep. He's a bit like the Sandman. Ah. Another Cosgrove Hall Sli- film. Slightly oh, yeah. less creepy Sandman. Is it? Uh, it was made. It was made in after time at Cosgrove Hall. So uh, Ian McKinnon, Colin Batty, and Paul Berry were Cosgrove Hall employees. And then when people had, when they finished making, say, Wind in the Willows, there'd be say a couple of foot of film left over in the can. And so instead of wasting that film, they would splice it together and they'd use it to make their own film. So The Sandman was basically made using all the scraps that were left over from The Wind in the Willows. So sets and lights and props and uh, and other bits and pieces that they'd make, uh, they'd use from, from The Wind in the Willows to make The Sandman. So yeah, it, it all came from Cosgrove Hall. Obviously they set up their own company, you know, called it... Uh, Batty Berry McKinnon, I think, or McKinnon Batty Berry, uh, but uh, and which would later go on to work on Mars Attacks and become McKinnon and Saunders. But uh, yeah, the uh, it was a Cosgrove Hall film for all intents and purposes. Yeah. So these are the giants that are um, wandering around the place causing hijinks and trouble with their long nails. Um, are they like the same sort of species of giant as the friendly one? I think I think it's kind of explained really, uh, either in the book or something that uh, because the BFG eats snozcumbers uh, mm. 
and the other ones are just filled with hate and they're awful and they're monstrous because they eat people. I think that is kind of explained, but obviously it's been they've been caricatured quite a bit. Yeah, it was like a vegan message at its heart. Good. <laughs> yeah, quite terrifying. I do remember being scared of them. And in the new film, it's um, Jermaine Clement doing the voice, I think. And they get a bit more of a... Slightly less scary. Yeah, yeah. He does, he does come across as quite menacing, but not quite as... Uh, I don't know, maybe I'm the wrong age for it. Maybe if I was a little bit younger, I'd be scared of Jermaine Clement, but I can't, uh, you know, help but see him as a lovable buffoon. Well, does he play it straight? Or is it more he kind play, of like yeah, he, he plays bad it, guy? He plays it as, uh, yeah, as straight as he can. So, so go on. she's an orphan, I'm guessing, because that's why no one's wondering where the hell she is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. She was picked up in an orphanage. Gotcha. It's a good gig for an orphan, especially if oh. by the state of that orphanage. Prowling around with a giant pal. Yeah. I, uh, when I was a kid, we went to see a stage production of the BFG. At one point, mm. and um, I remember being kind of annoyed at the production values of it, because kids are <laughs> obnoxious, entitled little shits, <laughs> and I was no exception. Um, but for the most part, um, the girl who played Sophie, um, she, <laughs> the guy was just a regular sized guy. And the girl was like a, I guess, a young actress, maybe a teenager or a young lady, who would just like waggle this doll about. <laughs> like she, would, she would sort of like she was on stage, but she was also kind of puppeteering this doll as well to kind of create the illusion of a height discrepancy. <laughs> and then, like, for like the big finale, they built this giant puppet version of the BFG, and then she was just on stage without the doll. Um, completely different proportions and the puppet was so bad probably actually <laughs> technically quite good in terms of the whatever resources were available but like you know i'm i'm judging it with my eight-year-old eyes thinking you know oh, for goodness sake my suspension of disbelief <laughs> is virtually nil i can hear the mechanism as his jaw moves up and down <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a, a stage production of uh, of the uh, of the big friendly giant, but I really want to go see it now. <laughs> I I don't know if they're still touring. Yeah, <laughs> this would have been nineteen ninety one, but uh, you never know. Some of these these <laughs> if they're a hit, they'll go on for decades. <laughs> so there's lots of kind of uh, swirly patterns and stuff here, uh, and. Uh, Ben Turner, one of the animators, uh, gave an interview to the Guardian newspaper uh, and said, for the sky, we got a fish tank and bled paint in it when, and when we filmed it in 35mm. Uh, the result was a Spielberg-style wash of boiling clouds that we could put in the sky areas. Sometimes we would project the clouds uh, up 
from the artwork or down onto them to give the illusion that the sky was moving. Uh, when I walked into the pet shop to buy the fish tank, they asked, what are you putting in it? And I said, ink. And they didn't really understand. <laughs> there you go. It's odd that they went for a Spielberg style. Uh, mm. <laughs> oh, how he'd pay them back. <laughs> he is a vengeful, vengeful man. <laughs> so uh, Sophie and the BFG uh, are formulating a plan to go to Buckingham Palace, uh, or it should be at your version. Whereabouts are you guys now? Tell me where you are. He's just about to get into Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Gambling, translucent across yeah. the lawn and is now skulking outside the windows same it, it's an interesting one this because i think it uh, at the time somebody had actually broken into buckingham palace there was a, there was a period wasn't there in the 1970s and 80s i think where a couple of people broke in uh um, one guy research <laughs> yeah yeah it was brian cosgrove himself no it was uh, <laughs> um uh, some some guy and just sat there on the end of a bed talking to the queen and she was just fine about it. Oh my God, that's so weird. I find it weird that this is still our queen. Um, yeah, well, she's, she's been the queen for a while. Yeah. She's really milking it. Yeah, I've got, sorry, I had to, I had to do the research. I'm sorry, I should have done it before. And Michael Fagan, was a British man who broke into Buckingham Palace and entered Queen Elizabeth II's bedroom in 1982. Um, yeah. <laughs> Why? Um, to, to shag the Queen, I guess. To shit her up. To shit her up. <laughs> Give her a right good drubbing. Steal a crown. Sell that shit on eBay. Where did it... Why did he do it? Did he say why he did it? Drunken I don't know. Bit. I don't know why he did it, but uh, apparently he re- he recorded a cover version of the Sex Pistols song "God Save the Queen," <laughs> <laughs> and just wanted to give her a mixtape. Yeah, and he was found guilty of indecent exposure in 1987 after he was spotted running round wearing no trousers. Fair enough. Well, um, that'll do it. There you go. He's my favourite person. <laughs> so you know what you need to do now, Ben, to compete. <laughs> yeah, got to start being a, a sex pest and haranguing royalty. <laughs> yeah, start. <laughs> so it's it's interesting here that uh, I think we're going to see a lot of the human characters are actually rotoscoped. Obviously, that's not the real queen being rotoscoped, but you um, see a lot more of uh, a lot more rotoscoping. And they initially wanted to rotoscope um, Sophie, but uh, animators Gene Flynn and Meryl Edge uh, did a much better job of animating Sophie without any rotoscoping. Good for Gene and Meryl. Yeah, I knew they could pull it off. Rotoscoping, I. I do wonder, like, if that really seemed like the better alternative back then, because it's really... Why are her, the whites of her eyes blue? That has always confused I... me. Like, is she on meth? Maybe she's, um, maybe she's blind. 
She's always been a really strange character. No, she's on meth. That's she is. Yeah, isn't yeah, she? she's, she's on nuts. meth. Yeah. She, look at her. <laughs> she's been on the tiles. It's all it's all kicking off in Windsor. Yeah, she's got the. Um, she's it's really weird, isn't it? Shakes. But why? Like, what happened there? <laughs> I like the character. She's very uh, she's very nanny off Count Duckula, who was one of my favourite characters as a kid. Tragic horror is children slain. Yeah. I like that it says underneath that, is that a police, scene? police baffled. <laughs> no, the the giants are killing children. Yeah. Ah. There's a, there's a there's a side headline saying bones found beneath school because I think that was in the original book where the the giants ate a school full of children. Uh, but it said it said in the headline police baffled. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of yeah. where this film and story falls apart a bit. Like, the idea that if we're meant to believe the BFG exists, like, we would be finding a lot more dead children. <laughs> Just in the day-to-day life. Maybe they were, maybe they discovered and went, Ah, yeah, that makes sense now. Jesus, her face. This <laughs> has really been bothering you. Her mouth, where years. does it go? Every so often, her mouth just utterly disappears. I think it's because she's also kind of always looked more like a man. Okay. Which is a lot more cartoony than the Queen, isn't she? The, ca- the yeah. Queen, the Queen, apart the queen from is like... apart from her eyebrows, the Queen's pretty spot on. <laughs> I mean, she's got yeah, some. She's... she's really gone for it with the eyebrows on the Queen there, but. Um... Yeah, everything. It's every- all about the eyebrows and animation. Oh, I'm, I'm gladly so. I'm so happy about it. But yeah, um, I think that she, there's a there's a sort of there's not much of a parity between them, is there? <laughs> You've got this Why sort of animated. Steve, I think you're going to need to get to the bottom of this eyes blue thing because it's not going mean, to. It's clearly not being dropped. I think it. I think it's it's. I don't know, I'm going to have to come up with some sort of excuse. Maybe they used too much white paint on the apron. There you go, Laura. That's Can we why. get Brian on the phone? Yeah, call Brian now. <laughs> yeah, he's wrote us another um, email. Why is the queen the only one that has irises? No one else has irises. She's iris. a fucking queen. Yeah, she that's why. She doesn't have irises. Because the queen... It's, it's interesting, because I wouldn't necessarily consider this, like, rotoscoped. Because there's so little actual movement, it's more—it's like they're almost afraid to animate the queen, because they don't want to fuck it up. So she's just like barely moving. Yeah. Like, I think they had the option to create a fictional queen, but they—well, well, Brian says so in his book. They had the option to do a fictional queen, and they decided to go with Queen Elizabeth because I, I don't know—they just decided to go with Queen Elizabeth, and they weren't—they weren't bothered about the repercussions. So to speak, because what do you do if you know if if anything happens? I mean, uh, if the Queen is featured in kids' TV shows, and you know all of a sudden, and if it's based on the actual Queen, then there are issues if anything happens scandalous. So if you've got a kids' TV show where the Queen's in it, it dates it, doesn't it? I mean, this is dated. This is clearly nineteen eighties Queen. It's not. Scandal, yeah, but scandal I feel riddled. like <laughs> our queen is quite matriarch. Plain, like she's not like it's not like they've picked Queen Elizabeth. Take that back. But it's not like they've <laughs> picked Queen Elizabeth the first with the red hair and the 
you know, the ashen face, like someone really iconic. Like our queen also could be like any a, queen. A retro queen. No, but like, you know, someone that's like, you know, or Henry VIII, like someone that is like definitely this queen. Like, even though we know it's our queen, uh, she's just a brunette old woman. It could be anyone. Um, I, I'm reading her as our queen. queen Elizabeth. But I'm saying if you watch this film in like 30, 40 years when she's been dead for a long time. Okay. You wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, that's Queen Elizabeth or whatever. Oh, I think you would be. Well, we would be, and maybe in England you would, but maybe if you were watching this somewhere else, you wouldn't. Oh, Um, no, no, I I think that given how long she's been a queen... That's the other fact, is I don't think they ever have to worry about her being not relevant, because she will never die. (laughs) Yeah, she'll still be the queen 40 years from now, so... People might think the BFG is Prince Charles. Hmm? Yeah. This is a touching story of how they this met. This is how they met. I was going to say. How they met. <laughs> I finally found a mummy. <laughs> and Prince Harry over there with his glasses on. <laughs> this is how Harry became part of the royal family. For real. <laughs> okay, so what's going on now? They're try- I forget why, but they're... They want to stop the, the giants. Why do they need the Queen for that? Because they're going to get the army involved. They've made the Queen believe in all this stuff. Uh, Because it's it's real. But they made the Queen believe in all this stuff. uh, So they can get the army to help them stop the giants from eating kids. And here here come the army. Or the army are coming up, rather. uh, And they're going to formulate a plan. If you listen out, I don't know if it's worth turning up, but the, the head of the army is uh, Ballard Berkeley. Ballard Berkeley? Yeah, see if you recognise his voice. He played another army character in a uh, well-known sitcom, but I want, I want to see if you get it. Was he in Dad's army? No, 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 no. Was he in Blackadder, the army one? Nope. What are some other army shows? Let's get to the bottom of this. Yeah, there's only, th- know, there's only like three or four. Voice. What are they doing? <laughs> you can tell they're in the army because you get the drums as they walk in. <laughs> Jesus, they're ginormous. <laughs> some expressive moustaches I appreciate that in an animation it's I'll, I'll give it away I'll give it it's it's major from Faulty Towers how could you not un, not get that it's major of Faulty Towers unbelievable I don't think I've ever watched Faulty Towers what I think, think I've seen like maybe two or three episodes right well that's our next podcast series <laughs> we're going to be doing a Faulty Towers watch a Absolutely. I'd, I'd be well up Just for that. Just pepper it with animation trivia throughout. <laughs> There's a good double take coming up. <laughs> he turns around and sees the giant. Why are they so huge in this one shot? It's a film about giants. But look how big they are. No, the that's true. Yeah, there's a little scale well, she's there. sitting down. Maybe they're just very, very macho. Hello. 
That was amazing. That was, <laughs> that was a very unsettled loop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that one maybe another take. Nah. Generally, I. I you never notice it as a kid, though, do you? The tea set's jumping up and down weirdly. <laughs> it's fine. I like that the table's made out of. That was a good blocks. chandelier crash. Yeah. It always put me on edge, anything like this, as a kid. <laughs> so he's going to make a mess. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to get in so much trouble. He's too big. <laughs> Why did we fade to black? Okay, that was weird. Did this happen in your version? It just faded to black and then faded back up again. Yeah, yeah. But it's the same scene. Yeah, probably put an advert in there. It was it was put, it was put on ITV, so it's probably oh right spot. yeah yeah of course. I think it it's also might have been them explaining the plan without us being told the plan, so that when we see the plan in action, we're not like yeah we knew this was going to happen. Uh, mm. So nowadays they do a montage. <laughs> Can you imagine a montage. <laughs> yeah, montage. <laughs> I do, I, I, it is one of, I think maybe only two fully produced features, uh, arguably three, to come out of Manchester, and all three of them came from Cosgrove Hall. But since then, there's there's not really been much. Correct me if I'm wrong, I don't, I don't really think so. I think there was this, there was the Wind of the Willows, and there was the Talking Parcel, but I think it was only 40 to 60 minutes long, depending on which version you watched. But uh, obviously, feature films have been made, like uh, puppets have been made and shipped overseas and or shipped down south. But um, is there any other features made in Manchester? No, I don't think so. The animated feature. Like I don't think this. I think this was apparently the is a, the only feature that Cosco folded as well. Well, I think the wind in the willows was edited as a feature, wasn't it? They made a feature. Version I don't know. Of that. I just just I just read online that this was the only feature they ever did, and I was surprised. Yeah, they, they, uh, yeah, I read that as well. It's on the uh, on the Wikipedia page, I think. And I think the first one, depending on what you think of features, come on, guys, you got to dive a bit deeper Jesus, than Wikipedia. What happened to his, <laughs> <laughs> his eyes went sideways. Oh, it's very extreme. It freaked me out a bit. But yeah, the the, the Cosgrove Hall made a couple of features. They also made a few, uh, quite a lot of short films, and the, a lot's kind of forgotten from this era. The the company made a lot of uh, fantastic shorts uh, that don't really get the time of day that they deserve. They're all kind of locked in a vault in um, uh, whoever owns archive. Yeah, <laughs> whoever owns it now. I think it's Boat Rocker that own the rights to the Cosgrove Hall. Uh, distribution and as a as a result of that you we don't really get much of a showing of any of the features and there's some absolutely wonderful films directed by like Bridget Appleby uh, like the Cinderella um, Pied Piper and uh, the Reluctant Dragon and the Fool of the World and the Flying Ship as well I don't know who directed that one um, but uh, loads of fantastic films from Cosgrove Hall that rarely get a mention it's you you tend to just get danger mouse duckula the wind in the willows chorlton and the wheelies and the bfg uh and then if you're a fan of the stuff as a kid you might mention the avenger penguins or you know stuff like that but yeah it's, it's a shame to see it all kind of 
kept in a in in a collection. Hmm. I think it's strange. I think I don't know whether maybe it's got something to do with the fact that they don't exist as a as a company themselves anymore. Mm. So perhaps I don't know. There seems to be people are not very good at remembering things once they're no longer alive in that sense i guess i always found it very strange because i i didn't other than the bfg and i think i might have had the wind and the willows on a vhs at some point but i don't remember watching it very much if at all but i never really watched any cosgrove hall output growing up i don't think because i never saw danger mouse or count duckula no, that would have been more sort of our age, yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, Danger Mouse wasn't even my age. I don't think Danger Mouse was on TV much. I must have been too young for it. You might have just caught it, Ben. But because um, you're a year older than me. I caught, so. like, I caught Count Duckula. Yeah. And that maybe was, like, repeats. Why are there dinosaurs? Mm. Sorry, wait one minute. There oh, was a... Where's Michael? There was a dinosaur. <laughs> some... Why was there a dinosaur? That was the dinosaurs why, why left over from the land before time. <laughs> they needed to use the animation. That's what this wasn't. Way, because <laughs> <laughs> I also thought for a long time the Lamb Before Time was done by the same company and also American Tale because it all has a very similar feel, mm. like the approach to the backgrounds and stuff, and to be honest, the animation. Yeah, I could see that. Like, I mean, I think sort of through. Our eyes a... now, there's, the differences are probably more. But clear, there's also but... a dinosaur for no reason, so I thought that was like a reference. <laughs> no, it's just a kind of, you're in this weird, wacky fantasy land. There's, there's also dinosaurs. But dinosaurs are real. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. You buy into that. Dinosaurs are real, but giants aren't. <laughs> right, Laura. The du- aren't the giants terrifying? Yep. Like, the the one that sleeps with his head on his knees always really freaked me out. Because he kind of just looks like someone's really disturbing grandfather. <laughs> they all look like somebody's really disturbing grandfather. <laughs> he looks like the scary ghost in The Conjuring 2. You know, the guy that's in the chair, Ben. In which, sorry? In The Conjuring 2. Oh, yeah. You guys still like going for one... it with the horror films? Yeah, the old man. He, ugh. He really looks like him. The, ar- the army the- really sprung into action here, didn't they? They weren't messing around. They were like, look, there's giants. Are you going to do something about them? And they were like, you know what? Yeah, we will. <laughs> well, now we'd have to go through so much admin. Oh, my goodness. There'd be a vote. <laughs> <laughs> Why are they all green? Giants. No, the the humans are green. Army. Why, the, why is their skin green? Um, oh, is it, is it camo? I don't think it is, is it? I, is it, it isn't so much... Oh, this guy's not, but the other characters, they've all I gone this kind of lime like the green. I reflection from the gas in the air, or just poor painting, one of the two. I like how you were, you were quite forgiving of, of people being completely green, but if the pupils are, are blue, then... <laughs> but they're not green now. 
<laughs> if it was one shot, then I'm like, ah, oh, it was probably a fault in the whatever. But she, they purposely made her whites of her eyes blue for no reason. Mm. No, they keep they keep showing green I people. I'm not seeing it. Maybe that's me. I just I don't see them as green. Here's my question: Would the army get behind this as a plan? Would they yeah. Would they say, okay, let's tie up that these one. giants. Let's tie up the giants and drop them in a big hole in London, in central London. Uh, oh, I thought they dropped them in a hole in this weird place. And I think it's in London in this one. But would they get behind oh. that plan or would they be like, yeah, it's just make some big bullets. See, I'm not, like I'm not a strategist. This one always freaked me out as well. The one with the weird little man bun. <laughs> Never trust a man bun. Whereas before man buns were a thing, he was the original. Is, yeah, he was the trendsetter. I strongly believe this is where the man bun craze came from. <laughs> He's so terrifying and creepy. Oh no. Action man's dead. Berg. There's a lot of just, nope. just army men giving each other a thumbs up here as well. like... <laughs> <laughs> And the BFG, well the BFG who could help, he's massive. He could, he could quite easily like, what, do you want me to tie a knot? Yeah, no problem, I can tie this stuff, dead easy. You know, it takes like five of you guys to do this. It takes me, it's just one of me, don't worry about it. But he's just stood there, half a mile away, watching. <laughs> yeah. So, did you watch many Cosgrove Hall films as a as a kid? Then, Ben, did you did you go in for Ducula? Well, I mean, the show I'd catch bits of, yeah. Hmm. Um, I didn't actually know the sort of Ducula Danger Mouse connection actually until much later. Um, my friend Toby was very uh, enamoured of Danger Mouse. Hmm. I remember. Um, as like a sort of nostalgic thing from his childhood, so it, I guess time-wise, it must have been on. Um, I know it's it's a strange one. I I mainly just remember the bad cartoons from when I was a kid. Like it's it's almost as if like my brain filtered out the quality stuff and just hung on to the the gaudy tacky shit <laughs> or just stuff that was a waste of time. Like I watched a lot of American. Um, rush job cartoons um, that were usually, if you know, not an outright uh, animated toy line that was tied into a video game or a movie or something, and um, and then just I don't remember enjoying it. I just remember it being there, you know, just sort of on mm. a lot. So um, widget. And Denver the Last Dinosaur. Denver the Last Dinosaur. He's our friend and so much more. And uh, there was a very short-lived head-scratcher of a show that was... It was based on Little Shop of Horrors. But instead of, like, Mm. eating people and singing R&B show tunes, the plant was, like, a sassy rapping guy. (laughs) That, um... And it was just, they would just find, like, TV, the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. Yeah. With the, the <laughs> probably the only thing that would make the Super Mario Brothers movie look good 
in terms of that um, expanded universe. Uh, yeah, it's just a lot of dreck, you know? Mm. I was very lucky. I grew up on things like Dexter's Lab and the Powerpuff Girls. and I think that's why I was so okay. happy when stuff like Rugrats and Ren and Stimpy came mm -hmm. along and the Simpsons, really. The Simpsons felt like it was saving cartoons. Mm. Yeah. As, as, you know, superficially ugly as it was, especially in the olden days. Um, it was just genuinely very witty. Um, and there was other stuff that I'm, sh I'm sure wasn't too bad, but I, like I say, it, you remember the bad stuff more, I guess, because it was sort of baffling. Mm. Um, and then before that, of course, it was all the 80s shows, the... Um, uh, He-Man and Thundercats and Transformers and Ghostbusters and Turtles and Care Bears and probably once again all things that sold toys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My Little Pony. Yeah, oh yeah, that was that. huge. Yeah, I didn't so watch any of that. If you if you get a chance, I would I would recommend revisiting Duckula because if you're the type of person that has a show on in the background while working or or any of that sort of stuff it is it's quite distracting because it's it's written in such a fantastic way it was brian truman that did a lot of the writing for uh cosgrove hall and um the episode there's episodes of of duckula the premise is really simple obviously uh duckula igor and nanny will just travel anywhere to to help with duckula's quest for fame and you're watching these episodes of what is supposedly a kid's show. And you'll be watching this episode and all of a sudden you realise that they've just spent the last 20 minutes doing a Faulty Towers episode because they wanted to. And they just kind of, Thames just let them get away with it. And there's this wonderful relationship that Cosgrove Hall had with uh, Thames Television in that they just let them get along, get on with it. They They didn't really, they weren't, looking over absolutely everything they did. They weren't saying, change this bit, alter that bit. These shows are, it, because of that, they're so pure in, in what's produced. Uh, and Duckula, there's loads of different episodes. They did an episode, you know, which is just Abbott and Costello. They'll do an episode that's, like, say, Faulty Towers, and there's so much variety. Uh, they're just allowed to get on with it. And it's, I don't think it's the type of thing you, you wouldn't necessarily get in kids' shows today. Uh, or that particular freedom. And there's this fantastic story where uh, Brian Cosgrove, when he finished on, I think it was Danger Mouse, on a series of Danger Mouse, the reason they got the Wind and the Willows made is because they were they went to a drinks, uh, Christmas party or drinks reception or something, and the head of Thames Television was there with his with his wife, and he went. they went up to Brian Cosgrove and said, what do you want to do next? Uh, and Brian Cosgrove said, oh, I, I wouldn't mind doing The Wind in the Willows. And the head of Thames Television's wife piped up and said, oh, that's that's one of my favourite books. And the guy just looked at his wife and then looked at Brian and went, how much do you want? Make it. Not, OK, let's talk about it or let's all. It's like, yeah, OK, here's the money. Get on with it. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And I think that television maybe suffers a little bit from overproduction in this day and age. Well, now there just is just isn't as much money. Yeah, but it but it has to be done to a you know, rather than letting the creator know that they've got 
however many thousand pounds an episode and that's what they need they, that's what they've got to work with rather than letting them get on with it and trusting them they they tell them exactly what they need for that money I think it's a, a bit of a shame to that mm. whereabouts are you guys in the film then Sophie's in danger BFG is going upstairs to help her Can we have the sound on for a minute? I just remember this being terrifying. <laughs> the sound alone is a bit... <laughs> this is just screaming. <laughs> yeah. This is... There you go, kids. <laughs> So you're talking about uh, the animator, uh, it's the animation of the, the big friendly giant earlier on. Uh, the film's actually mm. dedicated to a guy called George Jackson, who was a, a, a British animator who, who worked on, on loads of things. He worked on uh, Warship Down and the Plague Dogs and all the cheery stuff. Um, but yeah, he was an animator for 40 years and uh, unfortunately he passed away during the making of this film, But so they dedicated the, uh, the BFG to him. Uh, but he was responsible for the kind of making uh, uh, the creation of the, the BFG, you know, how he looks and uh, even down to his chin, I suppose. Hmm. Ooh, maybe that's one we should do at some point. We should do Plague Dog versus Isle of Dogs. Mm. Plague Dogs versus Isle of Dogs. Wow. That'd be good. Plague Dogs versus Warship Down. Because I think versus Isle of Dogs, it's got no chance. Oh, true. So as the BFG triumphed over Blood Bottler or Bone Cruncher or I can't remember what what, what the name of this character was. Yeah, and the uh, army helicopters are bringing in the uh, giants over the river. Don't really know why they couldn't just go up and drop them on the floor in the giant world rather than polluting more of our world. Uh, we need to keep an eye on them. It's flesh, well, flesh lumpy. Yeah. Oh wait, they're putting them in prison. Oh, it's like Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> we all know how that ended up. They're going to escape. This is going to. They're be... probably keeping the window open for a sequel. Like, this is going to no, be look like. How, look how small that that prison is. Yeah. <laughs> like if they stand up, they could get out of it. <laughs> That's going to be the new like zoo. Central Zoo come and like throw <laughs> bones at the at the giants. They eat children. What what are the army gonna do? Are they just gonna let them die and rot in the middle of London or are they gonna feed them children? What's the plan? They're gonna feed them cows. <laughs> There's whole cows. No, they eat children. They don't eat cows. If they ate cows, there wouldn't be a problem. They'd just They'll give have them to cows. Adapt. <laughs> you get four children and a cow. <laughs> You can, you can. There's a ch- children substitute. You can make it out of cashews <laughs> into special paste, and it's virtually the exact same thing. They'll learn to. They'll learn to be vegan. Yeah. There was an amazing character in the audience. There, it was like a woman whose head was just like one, one solid shape, and she had two dots for eyes and a dot for a mouth, and that was it. 
It's the most amazing character design I've ever seen. There, look there. Oh, yeah. Look at her. <laughs> she says a wiggly line with some dots. It's just the queen is so much more detailed than anyone else in the face. It is actually quite a well observed performance out of the queen because she she doesn't move a lot when she talks. No, no, she's that's... pretty static. Yeah, mm. it's her training. She's quite reserved. Mm. She should gesticulate more. I remember in the film it seeming like the queen and the giant were going to get together. Um, because that's how like their um, their demeanor towards each other sort of felt like that. I well, see. I've not seen Prince Philip. He's out the picture. He's not yeah, in this. He's he not in this film. film. He's feeling. He's feeling intimidated. That's what he's doing. He's up in Balmoral, licking his wounds. <laughs> Well, now we know how Prince Charles has such big ears. Yeah. See, origin story. <laughs> I think we've cracked open another uh, royal conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> Did the Queen really sleep with the BFG? Sounds like a title for a sun title page. Yeah. Expose. <sighs> Ooh, and now he's being banished. No. no, now she's saying, see you later, giant. I'm going to keep the kid. You're you're going to go away now. I'm going to sleep away, camp it, and make him her live as a boy. <laughs> and call him Harry. All is well. So Sophie's clearly upset that she has to live in a palace now. <laughs> Not too bad for an orphan. Yeah. Where she wants to go and live with... A ginormous man and eat disgusting fruit. Or disgusting cucumber-esque, mouldy cucumbers. Uh, Sour cucumbers. In a weird, in a weird kind of psychedelic, knobbly, orangey, spray-painty world. Just fatten the place up. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, all of that sounds better than living in Buckingham Palace. Are you allowed to fart in Buckingham Palace? Ew. Yeah. Well, you are. See. But it's no. only through the Queen. She could. She I think it's let treason. Rip. It's one of those things. Is that when you see things like palaces and that people are like, "Ooh, it must be so nice to live here." They're really fucking boring, aren't they? Because they're just full of furniture you can't touch or sit on. Even as a royal member of the family, like it's like living in a museum. Oh, I'm sure they've got like a back room with like arcade machines, full of IKEA yeah, furniture. Yeah, but it's even so. Yeah. Like I feel like it's not that fun. I mean, it's better than the orphanage or giant underwear drawers, but still. Jesus, he won't leave. It's like the end of the Lord of the Rings. Just <laughs> get on the damn boat. He's wearing eyeliner. Yeah, the entire film. He is fabulous. Yeah. The big fabulous giant. That's what BFG stands for. I mean, it did look like he was going to run into that crowd and stomp all over him. I'm glad he took off. And he disappears into the into the sun, back to giant country. Right. Oh, it was good. I, I've not seen that, I've not seen that in years, and I'm really glad I watched it again. I think the last time I watched it was when we did the first year Manchester Animation Festival. We played it. 
Ooh. There's a lot of really good sequences in that. Mm. So it's a good study. And uh, as sort of as we went into before, considering it was a relatively low budget affair, um, they really hit it behind a lot of really good artistry. So, hmm. well done, Cosgrove Hall, and uh, all these people, wonderful people in the credits. They did a very good job. Yeah, some names here that are still still knocking around the Manchester animation scene. Some gone on to work at Disney. There's Ken Duncan there and. Uh, but yeah, it's a Cosgrove Hall had this kind of real pivotal moment in, uh, you know, the Manchester animation community wouldn't exist without without Cosgrove Hall, and it's nice to see some names here peppered among the credits of people that have gone <laughs> on to continue. Malcolm McGookin, <laughs> I think he's in Australia now. Um, so yeah. we're taking a, a little break. Yeah, we're having a week off from uh, this. Intense film uh, binge, uh, and then in a fortnight's time, it's going to be well, starting tomorrow. For but for a fortnight, it's going to be Chicken Run, which is celebrating its twentieth anniversary, versus Fantastic Mr. Fox. Right on! So I'm yes, so keep your eyes on the uh, on the website, and on our Facebook, and on whatever social media squiggly outlets exist in the interim. Uh, cast your vote in the polls and uh, we'll see if your film wins. Mm. And if you guys have any suggestions for other films we could uh, put in the running, um, we'll probably do another batch after we come back, so there'll be plenty of opportunities to pitch film against film. And uh, if you guys you know, have your own ideas, we'd love to throw them in the mix. Absolutely, yeah. Get in touch with us on uh, Facebook. Uh, send us an email, uh, or you can message me on Twitter at Mister underscore S underscore Henderson. I don't know if you guys want to reveal your your Twitter handles as well. Uh, I'm at Ben O Mitchell, but uh, just bother Steve about the film stuff. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. You can bother me too. Um, in theory, we're at Squiggly on Twitter, collectively. Um, but uh, if, if for some reason we're not showing up, try one of our uh, personal accounts. Yeah. Uh, oh, we're at the copyright bit, so I guess that's the end. I've been Ben. You've been Laura Beth. You've been Steve. Thanks, everyone. I certainly Goodbye. have. Bye. Bye.